Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 163, Dr. K. Scott Oliphant on How Christianity Trumps Philosophy. Dr. K. Scott Oliphant has been a professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania since 1991. He teaches courses there in apologetics, systematic theology, and Christian philosophy, and he's also an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. His books include Covenantal Apologetics, Reasons for Faith, God with Us, and The Majesty of Mystery. He also regularly blogs at Reformation21.org. But he's here today to discuss his contributions to the new book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. There he defends a covenant model of the relationship between Christianity and philosophy, on which the first trumps the second. Dr. Oliphant, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks very much, Dale. Dr. Oliphant, in your chapter in this book, you choose to define Christianity for the purposes of your chapter, in your words, as the theology that came out of the Reformation, including the post-Reformation era, as expressed in the creeds and confessions of that era, end quote. You go on to mention the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Why did you choose to be so specific rather than going with a minimal, mere Christianity approach? I think the main reason would be that I recognize from my own perspective that the Reformation takes seriously the Principia of Theology more seriously than generic evangelicalism would. I used to be that, and so I've moved uh, from that to a Reformed position. There was no way for me to argue from a mere Christianity standpoint on the basis of a robust Principia. So in order to do that, I needed readers to recognize that that was my theological perspective and uh, the truth that I hold. And so that had to be established at the beginning. That doesn't mean, I just want to make clear, doesn't mean that only Reformed Christianity is Christianity. It just means, as Warfield would put it, Reformed Christianity is Christianity come to its own. That's what I think, and that's the position from which I had to set out my argument. Dr. Oliphant, can you just unpack this notion of principia a little bit for people who aren't familiar with that term? Right. It's a term that uh, gained a good bit of credibility during the time of the Reformation because one of the things the Reformers needed to do, and you remember they were interested in reforming theology for the sake of the church, so it was very much a churchly task. One of the things they had to do was to uh, begin to wrestle through what happens when it is not the church that establishes the authority of the Bible but instead the Bible carries with it its own authority. What they began to work with is the notion of principium, that's the Latin, RK would be the Greek, and it goes all the way back at least to Aristotle, and it's a recognition that there are some foundations on which all of us must stand in order to postulate or predicate anything, and those foundations are themselves indemonstrable. There are those principles behind which we cannot go. And according to Aristotle and then the Reformers, there were two of those. There was a, a foundation 
of knowledge, Principium Cognoscendi, and a foundation of existence, a Principium Ascendi. So in everything that we postulate and everything that we predicate behind that are Principia on which we stand in, in order to make our statements, in order to postulate anything, in order to believe anything, in order to assert anything. That's where we are. For Aristotle, it had to do with the canons of logic. For uh, the reformers, they began to uh, argue and articulate the notion that God's revelation is our principium cognoscendi. God's own existence is our principium ascendi. Those were the two basic foundations of reform thinking. I would say of Protestant thinking, because that's what they were working on at that time. Uh, and they moved forward then outside the context of the church determining what it is that is the final authority. And in, in Romanism, it's the church. Uh, moved out of that context and into the notion of the self-attestation of God's revelation, which means it carries its authority within itself. So a principle is a kind of a proper starting point for thinking something that's known, but not on the basis of other things, yeah, at least that, for a principle right. of knowledge. But not in isolation from other things. It's just that it is its own foundation. And the reason I think the Latin is better is because it's more than just the way we use the word principle. It has to do with a foundation, if, if I could use that kind of uh, a metaphor. In a house, it's that which everything depends on in the house in order for the house to be a house. It's the foundation, it's the source of everything else with respect to knowledge and existence. Dr. Oliphant, how would you summarize your disagreements with your two Christian interlocutors in this book? As I think about it, my position maybe, maybe with certain qualifiers, could be kind of a convergence model to keep with our, our C's convergence model between McGrew and, and Moser. I think there are good things in both of those positions, but there was disagreement, for example, for me, this, this is fairly central. There was disagreement on how we might understand Romans 1. How we understand Romans 1 has a deep foundational implications for epistemology, I think both of us would be in basic agreement on our Principium Ascendi. We don't have, I would say, substantial arguments about the existence of God. We're going to have arguments, I think, about his character. But unlike Professor Oppie, we don't have disagreements there. So I think it, it has to do really with how and in what way we allow or infer our principia according to the relationship of Christianity to philosophy and what Christianity itself is. So maybe the, the question would be this for all three of us, in what way does God's revelation inform and infuse everything else that we do and we think? And I think that's where we would differ in our answers on that question. Dr. Oliphant, in your chapter here, you quote the famous 17th century Reformed theologian Francis Turretin as saying that philosophy, quote, serves as a means of convincing the Gentiles and preparing them for the Christian faith, end quote. Would an example of this be a design argument which convinces an atheist or an agnostic that the cosmos must have been deliberately put together by one or more intelligent beings? Yeah, I think what Turretin has in mind is, again, if I can reference Romans 1, 
If it is the case that creation screams the existence of God, such that there is no fact in creation that is not itself a revelation of God, and if it's the case that that revelation gets through because God is the actor in revealing it, then it must be the case that things that deal with biblical revelation, that deal with creation, because it's revelation, those things are going to be witnesses to the character of God. And in that way, you can certainly look at the universe and see that there is design there. There are no cogent arguments available to allow for that kind of design in a world that is anything other than God's world. That is, if it's deterministic, then there's no sense in anything at all, as Dawkins would have us believe. Or if it's simply chance produced, then you can't really understand design in any sort of proper way. So I think what Turretin is saying there is that philosophical questions that are asked, I experienced this in, in my own studies in college, philosophical questions that are asked can't really be properly answered apart from the Christian answer. So let's ask the questions, look at all of the design, what in the world does it mean, where in the world could it come from? And then let's see what cogent answers are available to answer that question. And from where I stand, the only cogent answer available is God, who he is and what he has said in in Revelation. See, I think the reason that we have our disagreements, Paul and Tim and I, is because we have a disagreement on what Romans 1 says Paul was trying to make the point that there's no real argument in Romans 1. You don't see therefore there, for Mm -hmm. example. So you don't see that kind of syllogistic argumentation given. That's just not true. You begin with therefore in verse 24. Paul is establishing in Romans 1, he's establishing, as he says uh, later on in chapter 3, that he's, he's already established that all of us are under sin. And he begins to do that in Romans 1, 18. Romans 1.18 begins what some commentators call the universal indictment of sin. So the wrath of God is revealed. Why is the wrath of God revealed? What is it that makes God angry? What makes God angry is that people who are made in the image of God are people who know God, verse 18, and yet who suppress the knowledge that they have And that suppression leads to, number one, the end of verse 20, which is a real conclusion for Paul. You don't get the technical word, therefore, but in the Greek, you do get a conclusive clause so that, at the end of verse 20, they are without excuse, first conclusion. Therefore, verse 24, God gives them over. And Paul uses the same verb, 24, 26, and 28. So the giving over is the evidence of the wrath. The reason for the wrath is the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. And what that truth is, as Paul lays out, is the knowledge of God's eternal power and divine nature, his theotes, his divine, his divinity, his godness. In that sense, you see, everyone is walking around. This is why I think it's helpful to think covenantally. Every person who has ever existed, Paul's point, is a person who's related to God one way or another, either by virtue of being under the wrath of God, those who remain in Adam, or by virtue of being under the grace of God, those who are in Christ. And there's no third place to be here. So those who are in Adam, Paul wants to make the point, he he alludes to Genesis, to Genesis 1 to 3, a number of times in Romans 1, not quoting it, but alluding to it. 
he has in mind what has happened to the image of God now that sin has come into the world, and how does that play into the righteousness that Christ has merited for us in his life and in his death? So that's Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 11, really. He's trying to help us understand, help the church understand, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes in Romans, that every person is a knower of God. It's that knowledge that renders us, if we meet God apart from Christ, it renders us. The Greek word there is on apologetus, that is, without an apologetic. We have no defense because we are knowers of God. God will not judge people on the basis of ignorance. He judges people on the basis of what they know. And it is he who ensures what they know with respect to his own character. I enjoyed this discussion and this disagreement in the book, and I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Moser and Dr. McGrew about this, and Dr. Moser stuck by his guns. There's no explicit design argument addressed to unbelievers here. I think that's definitely right. Paul's purpose, as you just explained, is to explain the plight of humankind and its sin and its rejection of God. It's not an argument addressed to convince non-theists to be theists. I think he's right, right that there's not an explicit argument. When I talked to Dr. McGrew, he referenced, you know, earlier Jewish writings that are about kind of knowing God through creation. And he wanted to say, well, a lot of times we make an argument without explicitly saying the premises and sometimes even without explicitly saying the conclusion. Yeah. I think that's true. But on reflection, I think the most we could say is that Paul here is presupposing that one might make an argument of that type because, as you just said, he thinks that people do have this knowledge of God through creation. That might be premises in an argument, but he's not making that argument here. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think there are two questions. The first question is, what's Paul up to? If my read is right and it's not just mine, it's, it, it has a good bit of substance behind it, then what Paul's up to is what I said earlier, a universal indictment, first of all, which means that everyone is without excuse. Now, if everyone is without excuse by virtue of the knowledge of God that God himself gives, that precludes argumentation, or you just have to assume that everybody follows the same argument. Everybody universally, from the, be from the beginning of man to the end of time, will have exactly the same argument. That's absurd on the face of it. So what Paul is saying is his interest is to say, not here's what we are doing with God's creation, but here's what God is doing in and through his creation, the result being, first of all, knowledge of God, second of all, because of our sin, the suppression of that knowledge, third, the inexcusability of that suppression because it comes from a, a, a sinful heart. Now, the second question is, does that mean you can make arguments with respect to creation and the way in which the world works? And the answer to that is absolutely you can. But you don't make those arguments from a position of religious neutrality. You make those arguments from the perspective of what the Bible says we are and who we are in relation to God. But isn't there material for a non-question-begging argument? I mean, I guess the knowledge of God is supposed to be not theoretical knowledge or not knowledge that's based in argument or in philosophy, but it's more like an awareness of God. Is that what Paul yeah, is mean, suggesting? Yeah, the example I've used, which I, I know has its own uh, weaknesses, but I sort of like Bertrand Russell's category of knowledge by acquaintance, you know, and he was trying to right. help people understand that not everything has to be thought in terms of propositions only. Now, that's important, propositions only. But knowledge by acquaintance for him, he says, is the very presence of something gives us credence 
for believing it. That is, we know something by virtue of it being here. I don't have to have in my mind that I'm uh, in my study talking. I don't have to have those propositions in my mind in order to know it to be the case. Paul's not interested in, you know, the questions you and I would ask on this. How does this relate to propositions and what is it that is exactly in our mind? Paul's interested in making the case, helping us understand that when God acts in terms of his creatures, his human creatures, in such a way that he wants to be known, he will be known by way of natural revelation. So that knowledge that our Reformed fathers called it cognitio insita, meaning implanted knowledge, that is from the outside in, it's implanted knowledge. Now, Paul goes on in Romans 2 to talk about the conscience being a part of that as well. So it's not just from the outside in, but everything that is created is by virtue of being created and God's activity in creation, it is itself revelation. So we know God, we don't simply believe, we know God, and that knowledge is personal, I call it covenantal knowledge, because it's a relational knowledge for which we are and will be held accountable. Here's an analogy that occurs to me. I mean, imagine we rewind history 150 years and we're trying to convince somebody that slavery is wrong. It's plausible that, you know, anybody that's had any acquaintance, real acquaintance, firsthand acquaintance with slavery, they, are, they just know it's wrong already. I mean, they're aware of what it does to people and they're aware that these are real people and so on. And probably they're aware of it enough to make them somewhat responsible. But even consistent with that, I mean, we might still try to mount an argument that slavery is wrong, something that gets a hook into something else they believe to try to convince them. It seems to me those two things are consistent. I think they are. I think that's right. You know, when things in our world happen that are sort of massively tragic, you see people, you know, in the media even saying, we need to pray, we need to, you know, we need to uh, beseech God or something like that. And then, you know, as things ease off a little bit, that goes away. That's evidence of the fact that there's an awareness there, but the awareness is suppressed in our day-to-day and then sometimes comes to light in certain contexts. I think your example is a good one. Tragedy is another good one. Um, You know, the best place for a minister to preach the gospel uh, oftentimes is at a funeral because people are confronted with their own casket there. And I think that's when you begin to see, you know, the suppression uh, ebbs and flows. I've used the illustration of of someone trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You know, you can do that for a while and it's going to pop up when you try to hold it down again. So there are situations in life in which that suppression will pop up a bit. But what it's meant to do, the natural revelation of God is meant to go hand in hand with the special revelation of God, not to be divorced or separated from it. Dr. Oliphant, you say in your chapter, the principia of theology provide those truths that are requisite for any other discipline. I wanted to ask you about this. Clearly, an atheist will deny that Christian theology is a significant source of human knowledge. In your view, will an atheist be unable to know anything? Well, you know, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Philosophers are still writing a number of books trying to understand what knowledge is. There's no consensus out there on that. You can move with justified true belief with some sort of Getty or codicil and then just say that and and move forward. 
but I think the, the reality is that because we are all image of God, that is God's creatures living in God's world, managing and dealing with God's creation, we are going to have a base in which it is possible for us to negotiate the world in a particular way. Does that mean that the atheist doesn't know, let me ask it negatively, the atheist doesn't know that two plus two equals four. Of course the atheist knows that. Mm -hmm. But there is also an understanding of knowledge that requires that it be given a cogent, reasonable foundation. What is knowledge itself? Is it, does it have to be justified and true with a Getty or codicil? How do we understand that reaching knowledge is something beyond just what I believe? If we think of knowledge in terms of negotiating the world, then because people are the image of God, they're able to do that. Are they able to give an adequate account of that? And my answer would be no, you can't give an adequate account of that until and unless you recognize who God is and what he has said, specifically what he has said in his son. So apart from that, there's no ability to give an adequate account. So the reality is this shouldn't be shocking to any Christian. The reality is unless you believe and understand the gospel, you're not adequately believing and understanding the world. Those things go hand in hand. Dr. Oliphant, in objecting to naturalism, you say that the notion that mind came from non-mind, no matter how often repeated, is inconceivable. There are no data available to show how such a thing could happen. You suggest that it makes more sense to suppose that all created minds, in fact, come from one eternal divine mind. But if the triune God is a mind, what, in your view, are the persons of the Trinity? Right. Well, I think I would just agree with the history of theology here, that when we talk about God as one, Charles Hodge, for example, says that that refers to one mind, one will, one power. Now, deferring to John Owen, but then there are also uh, specific and particular hypostatic acts of the three relative to the one. The act of the Son, let's use him as an example, the act of the Son is that he, for example, Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's a consideration we have to, I think, maintain that took place prior to the incarnation. In my view, it took place at the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Spirit. So there we have God of one mind covenantally, but hypostatically distinct acts relative to that one mind in the Father, Son, and Spirit. When we're dealing with this kind of mystery, I'm not sure we can go much beyond uh, those kinds of statements in order to understand it. At least what we have to recognize, the point I was trying to make is that historically, the triune God has been seen to be of one mind, will, and power. And there's no other way cogently to recognize how we are minds and conscious apart from the mind and consciousness of God who gave us those minds. So then the persons of the Trinity are not minds then, is that correct? In the sense that the persons of the Trinity are one mind, so they are mind, and in respect to that one mind, 
they have distinct hypostatic acts of consciousness of their own hypostatic existence. You know, the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. It was not the Father who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, so emptied himself. It was the Son who had that consideration, and that's a distinct hypostatic act with respect to the one mind of God. I think that's as good as Scripture will allow us to do at that point. Would it be fair to describe the persons as modes of being of the one God, like some yes. theologians yeah, have suggested? Yes, intra, that's right. That is with respect to the being of God. The hypostases, I think, have to be modalities relative to the essence of the one God. Those modalities, you know, there's a long discussion about this, especially in medieval theology. Those modalities are not simply rational, they're real modalities. Maybe Scotus would say formal modalities that are themselves real, but not things. That's the way it was distinguished during the time of the Reformation. So it's not thing upon thing. Each person is modally real and substantially one. I think that's a nice way to put it. What do you make of the theme, then, that you see in some authors now, and even in some popular preaching, of the Trinity as a wonderful community of three, an eternal dance, kind of like a quasi-family, where it seems that they're thinking of it as three beings, three, three minds, three intelligent agents? Well, I think you can't avoid either tritheism or some sort of social Trinitarianism. I think it's not a good idea to play too loosely with uh, the way in which we're meant by way of biblical revelation to understand who God is. I don't think we have the option of ascribing anything substantial, and that's, you know, that has a, a huge theological pedigree, but anything substantial to each of the modes of being separately to Father, Son, or Spirit. That's why we define them hypostatically instead of substantially. We're just trying to use language to uh, biblically articulate what we see in Scripture. So I'm not in favor of that kind of speaking or the kind of speaking that's become uh, popular in some uh, circles where you see um, the Son eternally subordinate to the Father. There's nothing in Scripture that allows for that. There's nothing theologically that, that would allow for that. I think that language needs to be set aside, and let's come back to, I think, the glorious way in which the Church has understood the Trinity according to biblical revelation. Dr. Oliphant, you mentioned mystery at various points in the book. I know you have a recent book on the topic. If we're considering some theological claim, and it seems to us that it's incoherent, by which I mean inconsistent with itself, in your view, is that strong evidence against that claim? So, for instance, if someone said the Trinity, I'm sure you disagree with this characterization, but if someone said the Trinity was the view that God is exactly one being and also that God is exactly three beings, where someone said that we do and do not have free will in the same sense. Is the apparent incoherence, does that sink it in your view? 
Um, no, because we have to understand what are the principia or what is the principium of incoherence. That word itself can't just lie there and do its own work without having a bit of baggage around it. So I think we have to ask, how do we define incoherence? Your example is a good one, but let's take one that might be a little, quote, simpler that almost all Christians, I think every Christian would agree with. That is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Many theologians, philosophers of religion have argued that that is contradictory, therefore incoherent. Uh, We have to find a way around it. Eleanor Stump, for example, has given uh, her take on how we can understand that by virtue of, of a whole and parts and the reduplicative strategy and things like that where you use as statements, Christ as man is X, Christ as God is Y. I think what we do when we see these mysteries, and we we have to affirm them as Christians, is we work as hard as we can in terms of what biblical revelation says, and as the Westminster Confession says, any good and necessary consequences flowing from biblical revelation. We work as hard as we can to articulate those things as best we're able, but we don't do that in order to dissolve the mystery. We do that in order better to understand it. Stump makes the point that Thomas Aquinas had three ways to uh, understand and articulate what kind of union might be the case in the Incarnation. And um, Aquinas rightly said, and none of these work for the Incarnation, none of the three are allowed. So we have to recognize that we just don't know. We just don't know how it is that one who is uh, eternally, always, and everywhere God can also be contingently, temporally, that is temporally in terms of a particular time in history, but now into eternity, temporally, man. We don't know. I love Herman Boving's quote. This is the quote that motivated my latest book on mystery, which I call The Majesty of Mystery, because I think it's inextricably tied to worship. But Boving's quote is that mystery is the lifeblood of theology. I think that's such an apt metaphor. It's the lifeblood. It's what infuses our theology. Once we see that the eternal, infinite God has condescended to our level to relate to us, we are smack dab in the middle of mystery. And then everything else that flows from that is going to have mystery at its center. And what theology does is work out how best to articulate that mystery. So it's not mysticism where it's just let go and let God, you know, he's, he's ineffable, we just do that. And it's not rationalism where we, our main design is to try to dissolve and get rid of all the mystery because then we can get our, our hands around it, we get our minds around it. As I say in, in my latest book, once we get our minds around something, we tend to get bored with it and let it go. Paul in Romans 11.33, I think in his doxology there, part of what he's saying to us is, um, don't you dare ever think that you can get your mind around the character of God. And it is that that motivates our worship of God. He's God and we're not. Dr. Oliphant, how would you engage with a naturalist or maybe with a Buddhist who is happy to admit that their worldview might have mysteries, either apparent contradictions or just things that can't be understood? Yeah, I think the reality is almost everybody will have some view of mystery, won't they? They'll they'll all want to, someone has said, plant the flag of mystery somewhere. And then the question is, where do you plant it and why? So, for example, in the interchange with uh, Professor Oppie, which I very much enjoyed and very much appreciate the genius of the man, in my exchange with him in the course of his discussion, he makes the point that all the way back there may be a naturalistic starting point. And and I guess if I were pushed, I would say that it's necessary. 
and not mm. not contingent. Yeah, like the first um, stage of the well, universe. Well, there, there you have mystery, don't you? And then you want to ask the question, on what basis do you postulate something? I've been criticized, maybe you too, uh, before about uh, you're, you're talking about a position of faith. You know, you have faith and therefore you begin to think and to move and to understand things. The faith that we have as Christians has grounding and has roots and has content. Faith in a necessary or, or maybe a possibly or probably necessary naturalistic beginning is blind. And in that sense, you see, mystery has no content. I think what we want to do at that point is, is try, to, um, try to work through what is meant by mystery and why it's there in our particular worldview. And, and that's a perfect opportunity for us as Christians to begin to talk to people about who God is as triune and who Christ is as fully God and fully man. And it leads us, ought to lead us, right into a, a discussion of the gospel. Yeah, Dr. Oppie had an interesting stance in this book. He wanted to admit that maybe there is a beginning to reality, but he wanted to insist that it's a physical origin. And if there has to be a necessary being, then he says, well, why can't this first stage, like the initial part of the Big Bang or something, why can't that be the necessary being? And I want to say no physical thing can be a necessarily existing being. That seems impossible to me. But then if he says, well, but it's a mystery, uh, I'm going to have to have a mystery somewhere. This looks like a good place as any. I'm not sure I want to grant him that much. No. <laughs> I want to get well, more mileage no out of these seeming impossibilities. Because there's no reason to postulate that as mysterious, except for the fact that he recognizes he can't provide a rationale for his radical naturalism. And when you can't do that, what do you do? You just you just say something. I mean, we know the scientists who have talked about, you know, aliens as the beginning of life. Well, you just say that because you you've got to have something. You're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and in order to do that, yet the pressure is on for you to, to, to provide some kind of rationale. I would say to Dr. Oppie, by what means can you postulate this kind of necessity? Certainly not empirical means. What are the rational means that even allow you to make such a statement? And there you're getting into the logic of his own position, and I think there's no answer to that based on his view of logic. He might just posit some kind of necessary thing, but that's nothing more than an assertion and a positing. And, and then you, you turn around and say, here's why it has to be the trying God. And, and you can begin to talk about who he is and what, what he's done in creation and why he alone is absolutely necessary. And any other necessity that flows from God himself is not absolute, but is there by virtue of what he's created. Dr. Oliphant, you hold the view that God alone is the origin of the possible, and thus the determining factor of what is impossible. I take it that you mean that God freely determines what shall be metaphysically possible or impossible. In your view, is it because of a choice of God that, for instance, it is impossible that God ceases to exist? In theology, we make a distinction with respect to God's will. God's will is both necessary and free. And again, we're doing this theologically to try to respond to your uh, kind of question, good question that you've asked. Um, the reason we do that in part is to say that when Scripture says God cannot deny himself, part of what that means is that there's no such thing as absolute possibility in the sense that anything is possible. It's not possible for God to deny himself. It's not possible for God to lie. It's not possible for God to sin. We recognize then that possibility flows from God and God's character, 
And anything is possible with respect to who God is and God's character, and he determines in reality, in the world, what is possible and what is impossible. His necessary will means that he necessarily wills to be who he is. There's no possible world in which he could be different than he is. And then his free will means that he freely determines that the world will be, the universe will be, creation will be what it is, and he determines the possibilities and impossibilities within context of creation. So I think abstract notions of possibility that aren't grounded in that kind of understanding of God go way too far afield. Part of the point is God is not subject to possibility. God's not someone who thinks, oh, maybe something will happen and I won't be who I am. Yandel's view of plain theism, where God is not necessarily morally good, but only contingently morally good. And he says, well, we we don't need to worry about that, because if God could kill himself in the future, he would have already been one who could kill himself in the future, and, and he's not one like that, so we don't have to worry about deicide. Those kinds of views, I think, are maybe fun for philosophers, but they have no part of biblical Christianity. To try to understand your view, you're making a distinction between truths that have to do simply with God and then truths that have to do with creation, things other than God. And there are absolute necessities about God, such as that God can't do anything wrong or that God can't cease to exist. But then you think in the realm of other things, then that's where God's will is the sole determinant of possibility. That's right. You know, creation reflects something of who God is, so there's a reflective aspect to creation. In that sense, it's not just arbitrary. I mean, when God created the garden in the beginning, he created it good, and we mean by that that there's no possible world in which he would have created it evil because what flows from God uh, reflects God's character in that sense. And so, therefore, we recognize that creation does reflect something of the character of God. So there are possibilities intrinsic in that as well, possibilities and impossibilities intrinsic in that. For example, could God create the Garden of Eden evil? Is there a possible world in which God would have looked around and Scripture would have said, behold, everything was evil and not good? Mm -hmm. And theologically, we say, no, there's no possible world. So it's impossible for God to create in that way something that is evil against his character. So the point is that creation is not just kind of an arbitrary set of things that God decided to make. Creation reflects itself the character of who God is in various ways. So with respect to the creation, could God have made a contradiction true, such as uh, humans have free will and they don't? No. It's a good question. It's difficult for me to answer it just yay and nay, but because I think possibility has to always be indexed to reality and not itself abstracted from reality, there's nothing that I could see that would have allowed for creation to be any different in that sense than what it is. We could think of it this way. Because there are real distinctions with respect to God's triune character that have to be maintained, there must therefore be real distinctions in creation that have to be maintained, so that the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, but the Father and the Spirit and the Son are uh, substantially, essentially one. And we see that kind of relationship in creation. So there are things that are not something else, but are also related to something else. And I think that reflects something of the character of God. Dr. Oliphant, thanks for talking with us. Great to be with you, Dale. Thank you very much.
The book again is called Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. It's edited by Paul M. Gould and Richard Bryan Davis, and it's published by Zondervan. Today's thinking music has been Border Blaster, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward. As always, there's a link where you can hear and download this entire track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also check out the blog post for links to Dr. Oliphant's books and for various links that are relevant to things mentioned in today's interview. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.